we talked about the fact that in a relationship with God, God has promised to give us certain resources, certain benefits, certain blessings, simply because we have come to faith in Him. And uh, we've been talking about this for a couple different months, about the resources or blessings that God has granted to us. Last week, we particularly mentioned that God has given us the mind of Christ. And when we come to faith, because Christ lives in us, we start to think a little bit differently. We start to be aware of His truths. We start to be in tune with His thoughts. In other words, God begins to sanctify our thought processes. He begins to enlighten us to see truth at varying degrees of levels. He wants to guide us and lead us into an understanding because the mind of Christ will change the way you and I live. We humbly recognized last week particularly that we also have an enemy who has his own thoughts. We have a devil who is constantly giving us uh, his opinion, his ideas, his attitude, and he might use many different forms to communicate what's called the lies. The lies are a way that uh, life is interpreted. The lies are the ways that truth gets twisted. The lies are those voices in our head that keep us from developing a healthy mindset through Jesus Christ. Satan is the author of confusion. And so many times the way he communicates his thoughts is to twist things in a way that you're kind of caught between two concepts. I think most of us are well aware of times in our life that you're just undecided, unconvinced. You're simply just caught in this valley of, I'm not sure what to think. I'm not sure how to respond. I'm not sure which direction to go. That typically is evidence of Satan bringing those thoughts, those ideas, those opinions, keeping us sort of in a valley of paralysis. And even though Jesus has defeated the devil, it remains true that he persistently wants to speak lies in your head. Even though we have truth granted to us, even though that God has promised to fill our minds with his thoughts, that you and I are constantly aware of the fact that even though Jesus has shut Satan down, he is not about to shut up his big mouth. And so he is referred to as the roaring lion who is blasting his lies, his ideas, his opinions in a way that can bring great destruction to our lives. And so one important thing to understand about resisting the devil is to learn how to receive and listen to the voice that Jesus constantly speaks towards us and to screen out the voice that simply won't shut up. Satan is not going to simply go away because Jesus defeated him. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that it's our responsibility to resist him. Satan defeated him. You and I are called to be a people that resist him. And one of the key ways that this resistance takes place, as we simply mentioned last week, is we take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We choose to learn how to think let the mind of Christ, the truth that Christ has given to us, and implement that in our lives. 
We know that as followers of Jesus, Satan's uh, master uh, deception or strategy is to constantly use thought processes that twist things or create deception. As we looked at last week, we realized that Satan particularly does it, and I'm going to review a little bit because I believe it's important. He particularly wants to drive at the lies pertaining to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, every one of us is keenly aware as to whether or not we have chosen to give our life to Jesus Christ. And once you and I have yielded ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean the devil isn't going to work at trying to confuse you about that relationship. What's important to understand is if we belong to Christ, we belong to Christ. If we do not belong to Christ, we do not belong to Christ. And so, but Satan is going to work in a way to cause you to question whether or not you're truly a child of God or not. And so it's important that, as we talked about last week, that it's one of the beginning places, the starting places in dealing with opposition, is I must recognize and I must know that we who confess Jesus as Lord with our mouths and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, you are saved. And so if we are the children of God, then we need to learn to think we are the children of God. And to act upon that, Satan will constantly deal with that identity issue. He will constantly work from one extreme to the other to cause us to question whether or not or whether we're ready or not. The second thing as we think about the enemy's voices and the influence on his life is that he will attempt to magnify your guilt and shame in your life. He wants to bring up your past. He wants to bring up your record. He wants to remind you of everything that you've done and everything that you might be doing and everything that you're going to do. He's going to drive at that guilt thing because when guilt begins to take seat in our hearts and that shame begins to fester, you and I will not be able to look in the mirror. We will not be able to pray with confidence. He is going to bring that out. So he constantly wants to bring up your performance record. He wants to work in those ways. The third thing, he will use all kinds of situations, all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of challenges that you and I are going through. He's going to say, see, God's not good. See, God is not loving. See, God is not faithful to keep his promises. It's your responsibility. It's mine. It's our privilege to know that what Jesus did on the cross has settled the matter. And by holding firmly to this quality of the relationship and keeping our hearts right with God and continuing to uh, always continue to recognize that God is good, help me out, all the time. And it doesn't seem to matter whether or not you think it's really good or it's so great today, God is still good. And his love is always there in his faithfulness. But now turn with me to John chapter 17. As we think in terms of the reality of the enemy and the continuous uh, work that he attempts to accomplish in and through us as individuals, he has a plan that if he can't take us out in our personal relationship, he's going for your public relationship with other believers. My prayer in verse 20, John 17 verse 20, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that those for those who will believe through their message, that all of them may be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I brought them to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father, help us to recognize not only that what you have done on the cross for me, but what you have done on the cross for us. That all that you have accomplished, Lord, you did that for a a so much bigger purpose. Your plan was so much larger than me. Help me to recognize as I continue to communicate the message I trust that you've laid upon my heart that we might realize the value, the importance of understanding the enemy wants to divide us. And I thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. If Satan cannot get us to uh, question the quality of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he most definitely will shoot his fiery darts at our relationship with each other. It's important to know that your relationship with me and my relationship with you as Christians is extremely important. And so obviously Satan wants to go right for your relationship with Jesus. And when that does not seem to be effective, if he's not able to rip you and I in half, he will come between us and cause a wedge or cause a division to take place. Uh, Sometimes we think that, well, that person's just hard to get along with. That person's a little weird. That one is, as Barb says, interesting. Some people are very challenging to to learn to uh, live with and to cooperate with and to function with, but it doesn't change that Jesus put you and I together. Jesus is the cause of relationships, and you and I must learn to realize that the devil wants to keep that wedge going on there. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 and 26, is we need to understand why is division such a big problem in the first place. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we want to look at 25 and 16. If you're not taking notes, I encourage you to do so, because there'll be a test on this. No, I'm serious. Satan will be knocking on your heart, and he's going to go right for the kill. Okay, I'm not going to give you a test, but life is an ongoing test. And if you and I do not discover the importance of a healthy personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Satan is going to go right for it and strip it all he can. If you and I do not understand the importance of a unified spirit... The power of God is only going to be scattered and splattered all over the place. You and I need to realize that God has created us to be in oneness. And he has a purpose for that. But first of all, why is the division such a bad thing? And why is it that Satan wants to go for that? Matthew chapter 12, 25 and 26. Now Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be, what's it say? Ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. It's important to know that though that information might simply remain somewhat information, you and I need to realize that you and I are in a real battle 
not only for our own relationship with God, but we're in a battle for this city, we're in a battle for this nation, we're in a battle in the kingdom of God, and a kingdom divided itself, it cannot stand. A home that's divided cannot stand. A community that's divided cannot stand. So Satan will constantly drive at causing the... The, the unity that ought to take place at various levels to always be split and always fragmented. He constantly, as we are well aware in, in reminding about foster care, that his, his key uh, strategy is to go right for the home. Because if you're going to divide the home, it's hard to have a unity in, uh, in your prayer life. It's hard to have a unity in your, your church life. It's hard to have a sense of unity because he's going to go where it leaves its greatest damage. And if he can rip one home apart, you've lost your testimony. You might be the only light on your street. You might be the only representation of Jesus Christ. And if he can knock that out right down the middle, we've lost our testimony. Some of the most damaging ways he's worked is to go for the pastor's home, to split the homes, to divide those who have a testimony or have had a testimony so that it neutralizes the power of hope and faith in what God is able to do. So obviously we see that Satan knows what he's doing. If he can split the dynamic of unity, he will have it destroyed. In other words, he doesn't need to destroy the church. He'll just set a few people in there to get things fluffed and puffed and ruined. And, and you and I need to learn to realize that is what we need to stand firm to hold that Together, The second thing is division destroys not only uh, a kingdom against itself or a church against itself, but division will destroy your testimony. It's hard to speak about what Jesus can do when he can't fix your home. It's hard to speak about what Jesus can do if, if we can't pull together. It's hard to speak about the power of the gospel when there doesn't seem to be a story to tell. And we referred to this in John 17. You'll notice in, in verse, uh, the gospel of John. We'll go right back there again. John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them, in verse 20, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Many people argue and debate over what is the proof that Jesus really came, he was, he was crucified, buried, and rose again. And many times the evidence, you and I try to share our faith and, and we get into little debates and we try to talk about the things we believe and, and many times people say, well, the real evidence is the miracles Jesus performed. What does the scripture say? Your unity. Why would that be such a powerful concept? It may never really grasp in our minds to appreciate the richness and value, but people know when people are connected and have a common vision and a common purpose and a common goal in life, that that is not the typical norm. You and I need to realize the richness of that. So obviously Satan wants to work in a way that you and I have lost our testimony. When our testimony is gone, of our uh, relationship with Christ, and, 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 and Satan has come into the midst of us and caused division. That 
obviously will lose a lot of the impact. So it's obvious why Satan wants to, to split and divide. He wants to, to cause us to simply come to a place where you have nothing to say, no evidence to bear. bear. There is nothing that uh, is in there. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, another very important thing. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Why is division so damaging? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder what? Your prayers. Now, we know that God always hears us. We know that every prayer we, spe- uh, we speak out, it always gets there, and there's where sometimes our problem is. It's because the right answers are not necessarily going to dis-separate uh, the fact that the heart is the real issue. Now, I realize we can get bogged down in this idea of the woman being the weaker and all that kind of stuff, but just bear with me. Satan wants to destroy your prayer life. He wants to put a hindrance to that. And the scriptures simply meant, meet that your relationships, whether it's the husband and wife or whatever it is, that there are ways that he can hinder your prayer life. Obviously, if Satan can get there and cause us to get bogged down in some of the details where we're not so concerned about prayer, we're more concerned about our theological views, you and I need to recognize Satan knows what he's doing. He's extremely deceptive, extremely crafty. He wants to get you and I to think that there's other ways of reaching the world that we can bypass each other. There's somehow, there's ways of of communicating uh, this message of life and doing the things God wants us to do, but we don't need to worry about relationships. The Bible is clear. No, you can't. So it's important to know that that is his key primary level. He's going to go for your relationship with Jesus Christ. If he can't get to that, he's going for your relationship with the person next to you. And he will constantly work in ways to create a divisive spirit and a paralysis of relationship with God. And obviously, he'll shut down your prayer life. We lose our prayer life, guys. We're in big trouble. But it's important to know that that is what he's driving at. He's constantly working. Now, I believe it's beneficial to note that some rather typical ways that Satan generates this division. We all know that, uh, in some sense, that division is a bad thing. But we may not understand how Satan uses his tools and resources to create this kind of division. Because it's not simply a yes or no thing to say, well, you know, I'm okay with everybody. It's another thing to, to recognize that the way he works, just as he works in your individual life, we know that's important, but we may not have thought about the fact that we may not be so settled in how do I know I'm a child of God, how do I know what this life looks like, and how do I know I'm on the path that leads to eternal life? Well, unless we understand these things, it doesn't do any good to say, well, you know you're a child of God because uh, somewhere on your back is stamped believer. Well, it's not quite that simple. You and I need to realize this relationship has a, a network of things that pull it together, just like in the church. What keeps division from taking place is the deeper issues of life, and that's what I want to talk about. First Corinthians chapter 8. How can we 
understand the dynamic in which he operates and, and ways in which he manifests himself that you and I need to be on guard. Because we need to realize that God has given you the mind of Christ. We also have a whole bunch of voices constantly pip, 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 popping in our brains and working in us in ways that we need to stop them, shut them down, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 8. We want to look at verses 1 and 2. As we think, first of all, the area of knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge is, 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 the found, is part of the foundation of coming to faith in Christ. We need enough awareness of what truth is so we can believe in truth. We need to understand a few things about who Jesus Christ is so that we know we're worshiping the right guy. We need to understand some things that the Bible has given to us, and that is that foundation or the knowledge that you and I need for life and a commitment to God. But notice in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Now the context is a little bit of an interesting one. The early church had a hard time letting go of the fact that certain meats are, are unclean and, and, of course, vegetables are all good. And there's still some people to this day, we talked about this the other Wednesday night, where we can get bogged down in the things that uh, uh, are clean and unclean and what you can do and what you can't do and whether you can dress a certain way or not dress a certain way. We go on and on and on. The scary thing is, here we are learning about truths, and now truth is becoming a division. It's important to know that love trumps knowledge. So the goal that Satan wants to work is he wants you to be aware that that truth is important to you, but he wants to take it in another direction and say, but you can be really smart and really knowledgeable of the Bible and be super spiritual. You just don't have to love anybody. Well, obviously, uh, those of us who have been walking with Christ for uh, more than a little while, we are well aware that love is extremely important. But you've got to be on your guard because knowledge will, will be of huge benefit to us, but it'll be one of your greatest destructive forces because somehow we tend to enjoy the discussions about what is true and what's not true, and there's nothing wrong with that. What's important is it can divide us. It can destroy us. And so we need to realize that Satan will use the very things that you and I need. We need a knowledge of the Word of God. We need a foundation. But he's going to work out and say, now that you're pretty smart, you need to tell everybody how smart you are. Well, obviously, that one would get us in a dead end. Uh, next, what's close to the danger of knowledge without love is what's found in Matthew chapter 7. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 5. It's tough when you, when you realize as Christians we come to faith and we're babes in Christ. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Uh, we watch little Arabella. She's almost a year old and she's already thinking she's pretty big. I mean, she can stand up and hold on to the couch as far as she's concerned. She's got everything covered. Well, next week there'll be a new challenge, and obviously. But spiritually speaking, we also are well aware of what it's like to get a little bit of Jesus' knowledge and start debating and, and sharing with our friends and sharing with our family. And sometimes we're not so loving and kind about doing this. We get a little bit uh, 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 too firm or too direct or too punchy. 
we lose sight not only of the love, but now it begins to move not only in uh, realms of interchanging knowledge, but now in Matthew chapter 7, we have to realize that sometimes when you've arrived at the toddler stage and you begin to move into the preteens, that now we know what everybody else is doing wrong. Do not judge in chapter 7, verse 1, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be, see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's the important thing. Some of us would say, well, then let's just skip knowledge. We can just love ignorantly. We can love freely. Knowledge seems to be now a bad thing, so we're going to bypass knowledge. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. It's important to know that knowledge is what you and I need. It's the beginning of establishing what a commitment to Christ really looks like and how that you and I ought to live. So as we go through that knowledge experience, which never ends, it's continuous, it's ongoing, it's a lifetime growing understanding of the things of God, the mysteries of God, the truths of God. And yet, as we continue to mature, we need to obviously be careful. It doesn't take long to realize that you've outpassed somebody else. But you can't let yourself stay there. You must choose to say the reason why God has given wisdom and insight is to help people not to let them know what they're doing wrong. Well, Satan wants to work in that way because he loves the fact that that division can take place because all you can see is that sawdust issue in somebody else's life. I don't know which is worse, to pass judgment or to not take a stand on anything. Because other scriptures talk about if your brother sins, you need to confront him, okay? So you have these this dual uh, extremes going on all the time. The important thing is how you view people how you uh, uh, address the issues of people is extremely important. It's extremely sacred. You and I need to realize we have no business judging other people, but we have no business letting people who need to be confronted to not be addressed with those issues. And so both of those are dividing factors in which Satan wants to work. And sometimes we say, well, I don't want to create any division. I don't want to create any problems. Believe me, you leave a little yeast in the batch, and it'll be twice as big next week. If we don't deal with the issues that divide us, they're going to get bigger and bigger. So it's important to know is Satan knows how to keep us in extremes. What you and I need to humbly say is, Lord, I want the truth. I want the truth in my life. I want the truth in our community. I want it in our families. And so we have raised up a generation in which we are afraid to sometimes confront the very things that are going to split us right in half. And so we need to recognize that the scriptures are clear to that. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. We know this is the love chapter because everybody uses it when they get married. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But what is it really talking about? Because that's important to understand. The devil loves general terms. He loves the idea that love is the answer to everything. And you and I need to recognize that love is extremely important, but love is not a band-aid for the reality of the things that divide. You and I need to recognize that as you and I journey and mature in Christ, the devil isn't playing. He wants to destroy 
He wants to divide. He wants to do it so things cannot be fixed. He wants to create a mess so that your testimony and mine. So when people hear about the name of the church, they say, oh my goodness. Aye, aye, aye. Let's go to the next one. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 3. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then we get to the nice wedding vows. It's important to know that the context is talking about that sometimes we are more well-known for what we do or what God has gifted us to do than what he's called us to do. He's called us to be a people of love. And you and I need to realize that the way that love is expressed is you use your gifts exactly the way he wanted you to use them. And so that's what we need to realize. Satan is a mastermind at causing you to not use the gifts or to use them with the wrong attitude and right dimen uh, wrong dimensions. And so we need to recognize that love, again, is the trump. Love is the one that accomplishes the greater purpose, but it does not take away from learning how to handle knowledge. It doesn't take away the importance of learning how to do healthy evaluations or inspecting fruit of one another. It does not take away the fact that the gifts need to be used. They need to be manifested because God has given them to accomplish His great purposes. We all know that these topics are great for causing division. Every one of these are issues that have created enormous amount of division in the general view of the church. But we choose to say, Lord, how do we change that? How do we let your love continue to transform us? How do we let your love continue to be the emphasis and focus of our lives? Ultimately, we need to mention one more thing pertaining to Satan's key strategy, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read verses 14 through 27, because if he can get us divided to where we have no fellowship, he seems to still get his way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 14 through 17. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole part of body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. I'll simply stop there for clarification. Satan wants you to think you don't belong on one hand. And the other one, he wants to move in those who feel they belong to say, I don't need you. You and I need to realize that that's a voice that comes from the devil. 
sometimes we transfer that upon each other. You and I need to realize that we do not fight against flesh and blood, that's each other, but against principalities and powers. And, and you and I need to realize that God has given us a, a heart for one another, a mind for one another, a truth for one another, but somehow, if we do not take the thoughts captive, the devil will constantly work and chisel and divide and bring us to a place in which his spirit is unable to flow through us in a, a group of, of unity. So some of us are born to fight, some of us are born to run. And that's what we need to recognize about that. And so each and every person has a part. Those who believe they're in cannot convince people they're out, and those that are out cannot try to convince people that they're in. The question may, may be is how do we grow in unity? Because we can, we can look at uh, a lot of the strategies. We can look at, some, at a lot of the types of influences. The primary thing is he wants to get us separated. If he can get us scattered, if he can get us busy, keep us out of fellowship in, in, the, in, the, in the sacred sense, that division is always uh, there. It's not that we are necessarily against one another that Satan wants to work. He just wants to keep you from uh, fellowshipping and truly enjoying the presence of the Lord together. Uh, how do we grow in unity? Let's, uh, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 12, and uh, we'll read verse 12 and 13. Now, the body is a unit, though it ha is made of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, we mentioned earlier that the devil is going to work on your assurance of salvation. He's going to work in your life to either convince you you're not a child of God, or if you're not a child of God, he'd love to convince you you are. That constant identity issue is either you're in the kingdom of God, you're either a child of God or you're not. That's extremely important because if you try to resist uh, uh, the, the uh, opposition that the devil comes and you hold up the flag and say, I'm really a child of God, that's not doing us anybody any good or yourself good to convince yourself you're okay when you're not okay. The flip side, which is probably more prevalent within the church, obviously, is if you are a child of God, he's going to constantly convince you 10 reasons on why you're disqualified to a relationship with God. The important thing is, have we come to a place where we have acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have we come to a place where we have yielded our lives to his ways and his purpose and his will? Have we chosen to believe that what Jesus did on the cross is our standing and our faith in him? Well, when we look at this, this division in the unity or within the beauty of the body of Christ, is baptism was that time in which everything that's personal now became a public issue. Now, people still to this day love to debate on whether or not you should be baptized or not. You know, you can get caught down in that, or you can begin to say, you know what? This is crazy. I know what baptism means. I know what the Bible says about it, so get in the tank. It's important to know that God has not only taught that that is important to say, but when baptism takes place is you bound yourself with me and I bound myself with you. It's important to know it's a clearly public, 
open confession. This is the stand I take. This is the position I take. This is what I'm choosing to do. And the meaning of baptism is to die with Jesus, to be buried with Jesus, and to believe in that resurrection power. And so when we think in terms of a study or looking at baptism, it's important to know that not only when you got baptized, you got plugged into Jesus, but guess what? I'm your brother. And you got to enjoy me, so put my picture on your wall. Well, I got to get your picture and put it on my wall. You and I need to realize that we have been bond together. We are members. Satan wants to say, no, she's not. No, he's not. These are the kind of dynamics you take place. Just as you stand firm in your relationship with Christ, you and I must understand our relationship with each other. And that's important to recognize. Um, a second thing that is important about this kind of relationship is, uh, or that, that keeps the devil from splitting us a half is in, in Mark chapter 9. Let's go back there to Mark's gospel chapter 9. I hope we're taking notes because there's a test coming. Matthew, or Mark chapter 9, we'll look at verse 33 through 37. Mark chapter 9, 33 down through 37. Now the disciples, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the home, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. I think we'll just stop right there. Isn't that cute? That's absolutely amazing how that somehow a competitive edge always remains within siblings. It doesn't take long if you have children to realize that sometimes the squabbles have no real meaning. They have no real uh, uh, reasoning behind the arguing. It's just that he said it, I got to respond to it. She did it, I got to say what I think. Constantly the tension within homes is something that is in essence, part of growing up. But as Christians, we, we realize that, you know, we're supposed to be a, a, at least a, a couple notches above this kind of thing, where we, we realize, you know, we ought to know what this tension is about. We ought to know what this competition is about. And it's pretty much chiseled down to Jesus in this story and another one is arguing or reasoning in our minds and hearts, I'm more important than you, you're more important than me. So there's always going to be where Satan wants to let you know either you're too important or not important enough. And so constantly we deal with that. So it's an identity thing. We need to realize that we are important to the kingdom of God because Jesus invited us and he's preparing us to go and, and serve him in whatever capacity. And I, and I need to support that and you need to support it this way. So he wants to constantly work in that challenge about who is the greatest. Now it's interesting that, that Jesus clarifies that because once again we might assume the idea of greatness, shame on you. Shame on you for thinking about greatness. But that's not what he says. In Mark chapter 10, we uh, want to look at uh, verse 43. Through 45. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great. Do you get that? That is, who wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's a servant attitude that is not only the greatness, but it's something you and I ought to pursue. It's something you and I ought to have passion about. We ought to get excited about the opportunity to minister to other people. 
particularly in the knowledge of the things of God, particularly in the important things that protect people from the enemy's influence, and particularly in the areas of, of sins or behaviors that are going to knock the person flat down. If we love people, we are concerned about what is good for them. I trust if you have a child who is two years old, you will make sure that child understands. You will do everything you can to not let your child run out there and chase cars. That was important. It was humorous, but it was sad. Because you and I need to realize, you and I know, brothers and sisters in Christ, they're on a bad road. They're going to destroy themselves. And we call it love to keep our mouth shut. That's not love. We must recognize there's a beauty of concern and compassion that not only reaches out to, to, to protect people, but it's a reaching out that says, my purpose is not to condemn you or to judge you. It's to help you discover the beauty of this life in Jesus Christ. The devil is not playing games. And, and he will constantly work at creating a division or a tension or an attitude that splits us when, in fact, we pull ourselves together for the glory of God. A, a third thing we need to realize that keeps the devil from getting his way is to remember your testimony. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. Numerous scriptures talk about your reputation. Numerous scriptures talk about uh, the quality of your conscience. Numerous scriptures talk about the evidence or the proof that you and I are indeed children of God. It's primarily so that no one can say anything against our good behavior and our good deeds. I'm running over time here, so I'll simply mention. Finally, remember prayer and how powerful it is when we agree. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, and uh, we'll try to tie this together as we think in terms of, of how unity is really developed. Matthew chapter 18, and we look at uh, verse 19 and 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. We may be accustomed to a personal prayer life. We may not be so familiar with an agreement type of prayer life. It's important to know that typically what creates unity is you've got to work together with someone else so that you and I can grow together in ministry experiences. And that's really what the, the, the church is about, is the church is about learning experiences of working together, working through knowledge, working through attitudes, working through motives, working through issues pertaining to uh, friends and family and children. We do this thing together. And that's what the role of that church is. But the church also is a place that becomes a, 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 a starting place to reach further into the kingdom of God. And so the church is a place that comes together and worships. And the reason we sing some of those songs, those moving heart things, is to let the devil know this Jesus guy means everything to us. It's war declaration, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we take that authority in this place and in this community. But another one that's close to that worship is our prayer times. It's so important that we need to learn how to communicate in a green prayer together. God wants to give us the desires of our heart. We know how to do that personally. God says, ask whatever you wish. We know how to do that personally. But have we come to a place where we 
anchor together and say, Lord, this is what we're doing together. We experience that. What unity really becomes is the fruit of applying spiritual principles. And the way that we take a stand for these things and the way we do them together in community, that's when Satan has no say. And when we see that influence of that agreed prayer beginning to come, that's when our faith really quadruples. That's when faith, you and I might be familiar with sharing our faith individually with someone else, but how about double teaming? How about praying together and praying for opportunities to reach people together, together, together? That's what the small groups are all about. And that's what the Bible study groups are about. That's what those uh, small gatherings are about is because we understand that division is no good and unity is the secret to the life that God has for us. Father, we come to you and realize that there's so much that we can learn. Most of us are well aware that because we've met the enemy and all the voices that he uh, throws down on us and all the suggestions he creates and all the, the horrible experiences of disunity because some things were more important than others. I pray, God, for your name to be glorified and your power to be manifested, especially in bringing about a sweet oneness, a spirit of oneness that accomplishes great things for your cause and your name. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.